We're getting there. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but did you know that we're already in presidential politics for 2020? Did you guys know that? This isn't, this isn't really news news. It's, it's simply what's going on. So uh, President Trump, we assume, will be on the Republican side of that ticket. And I promise this is going somewhere. I won't, I won't, I won't spoil your entire Sunday on uh, politics. So last week, uh, this isn't all of them, uh, but there were 20 candidates on the Democratic ticket hoping to be the presidential nominee, Democrats' nominee, to run uh, for president. And uh, some, frankly, some people and faces, you probably don't recognize them at all. I certainly didn't, names and faces. You know, but the question for them really is, is it Amy or Corey or Beto or Miss Gillibrand, I think, or is it somebody that's not even on the public scene yet who will end up July 2020 in Milwaukee being announced as the Democratic candidate for president? It's a big deal. And you know, every one of these candidates, they have their supporters. They have backers. So they have people. The news, news does come up on this semi-regularly now as to the amount a candidate has raised. So all of these folks have backers. They have people that believe in them. And they indicate that belief because they give them checks. They give them donations. They get on the phone. They establish marketing campaigns. So there's a lot going on. Every one of these candidates, and maybe, again, some that aren't in the arena yet, in what's really a horse race, uh, they all have people that hope they're the one that they're liberal enough, social enough, progressive enough, whatever, a combination of all of those things, to bring together enough supporters in the Democratic arena to get the nomination, and then to win the popular election to be president. But guys, you and I both know, in a field this big, most of the people that are looking at a candidate today are going to be disappointed, because their candidate's not the candidate. Just on the numbers, it's a given. So there's expectations, there's hopes, and there's going to be disappointments for some. And at the end of the day, when the horse race is over, only one of those is going to be the Democratic nominee. Now with that, it may be a stretch, you think, but I don't think it is. Things were not all that dissimilar 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday. You know, here in the States, in our day and our time, everything is politics, isn't it? Politics is religion, religion is politics, everything, it's, it's, it's uh, a mishmash. And guys, that was exactly the same thing that was going on 2,000 years ago on that Palm Sunday. Let me just go over some of the ways in which that was true. This is a great image, Jesus and disciples on the Mount of Olives. And if you look at the image there, you can see sort of on your right, the bright white spot, little square, that would be the temple on the Temple Mount. But you remember when Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday, the Jews, 500 years earlier, had been captives in Babylon. And there were a number of reasons for that. But one of the key ones was idolatry. And when they came back from the land of Babylon, from captivity, that second exodus, idolatry was no longer an issue for these guys. They had other challenges as far as sin and their relationship with Yahweh. But idolatry was not one of them. When this was going on... King Herod, when we get to Jesus, King Herod was absolutely hated by the Jews. He was the king over the Jews, but he was an Edomite. Some texts call it an Idumean, but it's an Edomite. 
So the Jews were ruled over by a non-Jewish king that the Romans had supported. And guys, if you read about Herod, he, is a, he was a murderously insane individual. Uh, the, the stories about him we won't go into this morning. Read anything about him, he's fascinating because he was so powerful and so insane and so murderous. But one of the things you've got to give credit to the guy about was he was a builder. He was a builder par excellence. The remnants of Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast still there today. But the big thing that he lent his name to was the temple and the temple mount. So when the Babylonian captivity had come back, they built the temple and Jerusalem. That second temple, it was not a marvel of the ancient world. It was not like Solomon's temple. So he came along, Herod came along, and he rebuilt it. He expanded the temple mount, that whole flat area that the temple sits on, and he completely renovated the temple. It took about 70 years. Tragically, I think it was 64 AD or 66 AD, the temple was finished in 70 AD. The whole marvelous thing was taken down again, just like Solomon's temple was destroyed. This temple mount, it was a wonder of the ancient world, no doubt about it. 35 acres, that flat area on top, it was the biggest sacred space in the world. That was Herod's doing. It was a magnificent place. It drew attention from all over the world. And sort of going to the politics, so Herod, remember, was there when Jesus was born. Tiberius follows uh, as Roman emperor, and Herod's gone. You've got a number of others. You've got Pontius Pilate. But related to the Jews' own religious leadership, you remember in the law that God said the descendants of Levi through Aaron would be the high priest. It would always be a high priest from the line of Aaron. And so when a high priest was instituted, they were supposed to rule until they died. And all that was gone in Israel when Jesus came in. So the Maccabean revolt in the 160s BC, they get their country back for a while. A hundred years later, the Romans take over in the 60s BC. And once the Romans oversaw Jerusalem and Israel, that position of high priest was as political as it was religious. And what happened was the high priest was usually the person who paid the biggest price, the biggest bribe to be the high priest. The position of high priest in those days would have been like the papacy during the Middle Ages when you've got the Borgias and the de' Medicis who for a price would buy that position. It was no different in Israel when Jesus was there. So a guy might be a high priest for a year or a couple or ten or more but Annas, who comes up in the gospel narratives, he had uh, with himself, he was one of five people from the same extended household who served at some point as high priest. So very, very political. Along with the politics of the high priesthood, there was the whole thing about the divisions within Judaism itself. Forget the Romans for a minute. The divisions within Judaism itself because there were all these political religious parties. So... The Sadducees were the group that provided the high priests and they ran the temple. They were the wealthy and the elite. And guys, they were despised by the people. Uh, they had the money, they had the power, and they were despised. The people that we think of, that we usually talk about as the real bad guys in the gospel accounts, were the Pharisees. But guys, the Pharisees in their day... They were the people's party. They were the progressives of their day. They were the new kids on the block. They rose after the, Judah, uh, after the Maccabean revolt. They came up as a party. 
They were the holy guys. Uh, progressives, uh, only in that they were sort of the newer group. Uh, they were very, very conservative about the law and obeying the law and keeping the law. But they were a faction. The Sadducees were a faction. You had the zealots, sort of like right wing, ultra right wing. They want to kick the Romans out any way they can. You had the Hellenists who were all for Israel becoming more Greek, more Roman in that day. You had a very, very political religious system in place when Jesus rode in on Palm Sunday. Politics looked like religion and religion looked very, very political. So as we get into the text here in just a minute, I've got three hopes this morning. The first is this, is just that with the introduction, with some of the images we'll see in some of the text, that you have a better sense of what did that look like? What did Palm Sunday look like? Do I have a, a concept of that in my mind? Has it imprinted? What did that look like? What might that have sounded like or felt like? That's one thing. The second is just to realize, again, people don't change, and most of these dynamics don't change. They were as political then as we are today. None of that's changed. All this competition, who's going to be the one? Who's going to lead us? Who have we set our hopes on? Who have we pinned our hopes for the future on? Same kind of dynamics going on then. And the third, and the most important for me, is this. The Palm Sunday crowd, certainly a fickle, at least elements of that crowd would prove fickle, we know, over what we call Passion Week, Palm Sunday, Jesus' crucifixion, and then resurrection. But the crowd had a number of things right. And no doubt there were real believers in Jesus as Messiah in that crowd that day. And part of my key hope, actually, sort of at a visceral level, is that as we look at and hear the words of Palm Sunday crowd, that in our own minds, in our own emotions, we have a desire for what they desired. They wanted to see their king come in. They were looking for their Messiah. And guys, there's so many distractions in life. One of the things you'll see through the New Testament is that Christians are called to expectantly look for Jesus' coming. For a call from heaven in which in a moment we will see Jesus face to face. But to what degree does that ever cross our mind or our imagination? That I'm waiting like that crowd for Jesus. So that's my big hope for the end. So leading up to Palm Sunday, <clears throat> Jesus had come down, if you look at the map, Galilee there in the north, Capernaum, his hometown, had come down through Decapolis, had crossed the Jordan, come down through the area called Perea, in the Jordan River Valley where he'd crossed back again. This would actually be about the same place that Israel crossed the Jordan uh, the first time under Joshua. Came across and went to the city of Jericho. So people in those days walked in a day 15 to 20 miles. It would have been a leisurely walk down through that area, down along the Jordan River Valley. He gets to Jericho. Jericho, remember, Joshua destroyed, but it had been rebuilt later. It was a prominent city there on the plains of the Jordan. So he gets to Jericho, about a 70-mile journey from north to south. He gets to Jericho, and before Palm Sunday, if you remember the stories from the Gospels, he has given sight to two blind men in Jericho. One of the Gospel recounts one, one blind man, but there were two, the other Gospels tell us. And then he'd also met that little, little fellow that climbed a tree so that he could see Jesus. You remember he welcomed little Zacchaeus into the kingdom of God. Spent part of that day in Jericho, and then apparently walked up from Jericho 
up to Bethany for the night. John 12 talks about that. If you look at this map, and I think one of the things that's helpful if we have images is it puts us there. It gives us a sense of what that looked like. The walk down the Jordan River Valley would be very flat. It was an easy way to walk. But once you started the 17 miles or so from Jericho up to Jerusalem, Jericho's 800 feet below sea level. And the mountains that run down the center of Israel, they're about 2,300 feet above sea level. So those guys are not only walking 17 miles distance, but the best part of a mile is uphill. That's what it looked like for them. And they get to Bethany that night, and that's where we're going to pick up this morning. I'm going to use a couple different texts. I'm going to start in Mark 11. If you use a pew Bible, and I'm reading from the ESV, that's page 847. And then we'll skip to Matthew 21 for the second part of this Palm Sunday text. So a little bit about about the background, a little bit about the geography and what that looked like. So Palm Sunday, that next morning arrives. and The text says, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, I think is the way the Greek reads, which means house of figs, and Bethany, the house of dates, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples, said to them, go into the village in front of you. So that's not Bethany, that's Bethphage village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. Some suggest Jesus knew the owners, they were believers, and He knew they have a donkey and a foal. My suspicion is this is meant to be a text like John 1 or in Luke's Gospel when Jesus tells them, hey, that place we're going to have the Lord's Supper, this supper tonight, you'll go into the city, you'll see a man with a pitcher. I think that's what we're seeing that Jesus has knowledge that He can't see. He doesn't know it as a mere man. He knows it because He's also God. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away. They found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of those standing there said, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. Switching to Matthew 21. Matthew records this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This would be the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9. Say to the daughter of Zion. Zion's a name for Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's humble. He's mounted on a donkey. On a colt. A young donkey. The foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. He sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Verse 9, And the crowds that went before Him and that followed Him, so He's in an entourage, people before, people around, people behind Him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I want to pull some of this apart just a little bit to put ourselves in the mind of the crowd that's crying out these things. So in verse 8 of Matthew 21, uh, they spread their cloaks on the road and they cut branches. Jericho is noted for palm trees. Palm, Palm branches were used commonly. Remember, they're on the walls of the temple. If you read Revelation 7, when 
when groups in heaven are acclaiming the Lamb, they're waving palm branches. Palm branches were on coins. Symbol of victory, life, vitality, welcome. <clears throat> they spread them on the ground. Jesus is doing part of this and the crowd's doing the other part. When Jesus says, go get that donkey and I'm going to ride in on a foal, He is purposefully saying, I'm the king from Zechariah 9. Now, he's riding a donkey, and that's part of the humility, and it's a little tiny donkey. It's a young donkey, so that's humbler yet. We don't want to confuse this. When King David, when the father made the son Solomon king, he said, put Solomon my son on my donkey and ride him through Jerusalem to the Gihon Spring, and there you announce him king, my replacement. The father put the son on his donkey, and that's how Solomon was announced king. This was not unusual. So the, but the imagery we're getting here is this is a king being welcomed into a city. So if you were a military commander in that day, you're coming home victorious, the city opens its gates to you, they throw their robes on the ground before you, it's like the red carpet treatment, they wave the palm branches like we might wave flags, and they welcome you the victor in. It's a royal reception. If you were a conquering king, you would probably ride in on a war horse. But if the city was welcoming you in peace, you didn't have to ride a horse of war, you would ride a donkey. And that's exactly what you see here. Jesus on his part says, I'm the one. I'm coming in as Zechariah 9 said I would. The people on their part are saying, you're the one. That whoever else was a candidate for Messiah in our lifetime, they're not a candidate anymore. We say you're the one and we treat you as royalty. We throw our robes beneath your little mount. Robes so we're your servants. We acknowledge you're the king. And then they yell out. We'll look at their yells here too. So what's significant about yelling out, Hosanna, Jesus says, I'm the king, rides the donkey in, and they're yelling. He doesn't make them yell this. They yell this. They yell, Hosanna. And Hosanna means God save, or God save now, or God please save. Hosanna means God save. So as Jesus comes in, they're yelling, Hosanna to Jesus. Jesus, we trust that you're the king that comes in to save us. You're the promised Messiah that God said would come and would save his people. Hosanna to the king. And they also call him the son of David. And you remember once, once King David, from him on, you not only knew that the Messiah would be from Abraham's line and from Judah, but you knew the Messiah had to be the direct descendant of King David. And in 2 Samuel 7, David had said to the Lord, Hey, Lord, I live in a nice house. You're still in a tent. Let's take care of that. I'd like to build you a house. And so God says back through the prophet to David, he says, I have a better idea. You won't build my house, but your son will. Now, in the near term, Solomon built the temple. Solomon's a picture, but he's not the fulfillment of that promise to David. Because the fulfillment of the promise says, your son will not only build my house, but his kingdom will last forever. So when they say, Hosanna, God save, they're saying, you're the king that saves us. And when they say, son of David, like the blind guys in Jericho had yelled, they're saying, we believe you are the promised descendant of David that brings in God's eternal kingdom, that saves us from Rome and from anything else that's a harm or a threat. You're the guy. 
All our hopes are pinned on you. It's not president, it's king. And our hopes are on you. We're invested. We believe you're it. Jesus basically says, I'm the king. The way he rides in, they say, we believe you're the king also. There's also some interesting redundancy here. So, this is on your study sheet. Uh, Jesus is just anglicized Greek. So, Jesus is from Jesus. But if you read the same name in the Old Testament, your Old Testament, it'll say Joshua. But Joshua is anglicized also, and it would really come from a name that sounds a little bit more like Yehoshua. And Yehoshua means Yahweh saves. So when Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves, rides into Jerusalem, the people say, Yahweh saves, Yahweh save now. His name and Hosanna. God save, that's Jesus, God save us now. I love it. I love it. Jesus' name is their declaration, in other words. And it's said twice, if you will, for emphasis. Jesus saves. Jesus save now. Now, the reason that these Jews had these, at least the thoughts and some of the words, some of the language, on their lips and on the forefront of their mind was because they knew Psalm 118. And guys, Psalm 113 through 118 are collectively called the praise songs or the Hallel Psalms. And when Jewish pilgrims were going up, remember Jerusalem's on the mountains, when they were going up to Jerusalem, they would sing those psalms of praise on the way up. And remember, what we're calling Passion Week, the Jews are coming into Jerusalem for Passover. Some of them are coming early. Some of the entourage from Jericho would have followed Jesus all the way in. Not only to follow Jesus, they're getting good seats, as it were. They're getting accommodations in Jerusalem because Jerusalem's numbers will swell because Passover's coming. So you got all these people going up to Jerusalem at the same time for Passover, and they're singing these songs. And they're closing on Psalm 118, which says in part, Save us! Like Hosanna, save us, we pray, Yahweh. O Lord, O Yahweh, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The words from that song, they're now applying to Jesus. This is the one who comes in Yahweh's name to bless and to save us. Now, if Jesus were a candidate, if there were a race, we'd, we'd want to know what his uh, credentials were, right? So as you hear presidential debates, you're going to hear everybody espousing their own credentials, their own bona fides. And we say, why did these people give basically unqualified support that Jesus is the Messiah? Now remember, part of the crowd has come from Jericho with him, and they just saw miraculously Jesus speak and touch two blind men, and they got sight. And they'd also come up, that same group had come up through Bethany where Lazarus lived, and this is the guy that Jesus literally raised from the dead. So you got some believers already coming up. But you've also got the fact that Jesus has been, over three years, length and breadth of Israel, teaching in a way no one had ever taught before. In fact, that's one of the, one of the things that's said in the Gospel. No man has spoken like this before. People have heard Him. Multitudes have heard Him. And they've also seen Him perform these attesting miracles. In Luke 7, John the Baptist had introduced Jesus and said, He's it. He's the Lamb. 
But then he was in prison and he had these doubts and he wanted to make sure. It's like, man, I think I'm done. Is he really the one? And so he sent his disciples to Jesus. And they say for John, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of David? Or are we still waiting for someone else? Jesus doesn't say, yes, I am. He says, go and tell John this. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And those are all out of Isaiah. The Messiah was going to do all these things. So Jesus just says, tell John, I'm doing all the things Isaiah said the Messiah would do. I don't have to say yes. I just tell you, look at my bona fides. Look at my credentials. The other thing is, if being the Messiah or the leader of Israel, religious or political or otherwise, was based on the debates, and these debates between Jesus and the religious leaders, they continue into Passion Week, uh, nobody bests Jesus in these debates. I don't know if you've watched presidential debates, you try and humiliate, <clears throat> if you can, your opponent. And every time, it doesn't matter who they, the, the person is, what group they represent, everybody that tries to best Jesus in a matter of the law or anything else, they come away humbled because Jesus wins every candidate debate, if you will. No one is able to answer him or to oppose him verbally. So he's demonstrated his claim to the kingship. And we know the religious leaders reject him, but these crowds on Palm Sunday, they get it. They say, you're it. And we know and we're all in. You have the credentials. You're coming here during Passover. The, the words from Psalm 118 are on our lips. And now we, we attribute them to you, to you. You're the one who's coming in the name of the Lord. Now, Guys, we have hindsight, right? So, like the Monday morning quarterbacks. So, we've got 2,000 years of history. We've got all of the New Testament completed. And we look back and say, man, they just didn't get it, did they? And, and we wouldn't have either, right? We wouldn't have either. So, what they got right was Palm Sunday crowds say, you're the promised one. Absolutely correct. What they got wrong was they didn't know, they didn't realize, it still didn't make sense. And it wasn't just for the crowds. The disciples didn't get this. The Jewish believers didn't get this. They didn't know that God had always determined that there would be a first coming of Messiah and a second coming of Messiah. That's what they didn't understand. And Isaiah, especially in this, there, there's four key areas in the second half of the book of Isaiah in which God talks about His servant his servant. And one of the key texts is, of course, out of uh, Isaiah. It starts at the end of 52, goes into 53, in which the description is the suffering servant. And Israel didn't understand how do those texts about God's servant Israel, how do those apply to the Messiah? Because we're looking, we're looking for the Messiah to come in as a military leader on a horse to save us from all oppression. That's what we're expecting. And that's, that's what the crowds didn't get right. They didn't realize that the first coming had to occur. Imagine this. Imagine Jesus comes on a white horse, a military victor, and He comes to a people who are still laden under the guilt of their own sin. Who would people His eternal kingdom? There'd be no one. He would arrive to His opposition not the citizens of his kingdom. 
He had to come first and provide redemption as the suffering servant. I'm just going to skip through uh, Isaiah 53 to catch some of the elements of that. He'd be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He will bear our griefs and our sorrows. He'll be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. This innocent one who isn't being punished for himself, but for your sins and mine, for Jewish sins. With his wounds, we are healed. That's primarily spiritual. If sin's not atoned for, we have a terminal condition. Terminal not only in this this life, but eternally as well. It was the will of Yahweh to crush him. His soul makes an offering for guilt, for guilt, for our guilt. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And that actually speaks, it infers resurrection. Death won't be the end for him. He's our substitute. God is going to crush him, but that death won't be the end. He will see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. What they didn't understand was God's work of redeeming a people for His name so that the coming King actually had inhabitants of His eternal kingdom. If there's no Redeemer, guys, for us, the King means only judgment. But if there's a redeemed people that God's redeemed for Himself through the suffering servant, then the King can come and take up the inhabitants of His kingdom. Now, as you know, uh, the Palm Sunday greeting, it doesn't last, does it? So that's Sunday. The week goes through. Jesus has the Last Supper on Thursday night. He's arrested, of course. And some of the elements, perhaps from Palm Sunday, are there on Good Friday. You remember, He's rejected by Jews. He's condemned by Gentiles, meaning we're all represented in the rejection of King Jesus. Uh, He's scourged. He's whipped. He's crowned with thorns. He's crucified. He dies on the cross, and he's buried. The ultimate treatment wasn't Palm Sunday, the reception. It was the rejection of Jesus, of course. But you remember the early church finally got it in Acts, and they said, oh, this was the predetermined will of God. This was God's plan all along. They just didn't see it beforehand. They only got it afterwards. I I love... uh, So, when he shows up and they say, Hail, Hosanna, you're it. They had all the reason in the world to do so. But after his absolute rejection by Jews and Gentiles, by the representatives of all the world of all time, Jesus rises on that resurrection Sunday morning, one week later. And this is from Romans 1.4. So, he had all the credentials to begin with. He's the Messiah. But Paul says this in Romans 1.4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That was the ultimate attestation that He is the King that would come and rule and reign. It was the resurrection. The other credentials were important Palm Sunday crowd understood that, but the ultimate declaration that Jesus was the one they were waiting for was in fact the resurrection. Now when you read Acts, you understand, we understand that the early church, they didn't know which end was up on what God was doing. Read the gospel accounts and it'll say sometimes God had prevented them from understanding. Jesus has been telling them, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise on the third day, and none of them got it. He told them 
but they didn't get it. As the church, as the church grew, as God gave revelation, you remember the prophets in the early church, the New Testament would be penned in those years. When the early church understood, we get it now, Isaiah 53 was the Messiah, but he was the suffering servant. He was bringing redemption for his people. Now he can come back as king because he'll have a redeemed people to be part of his eternal kingdom. Once the church got that, and it didn't take long, the theme, like the Palm Sunday crowd, the Palm Sunday crowd is looking for the Messiah. Once the early church got this, a first coming for our sins, a second coming for his kingdom, once they got that, guys, the the thought of the early church was, we're looking for our version of Palm Sunday. We're looking for King Jesus to come back and take up his throne. So in Acts 1, 11, 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he's been with the guys all that time, but he's on the Mount of Olives. And it says simply, he's taken away, a cloud receives him into heaven, and he's gone. And the guys are gawking. This is, uh, he was crucified, we missed him, but he came back, and now he's gone again. And the angels appear to them, and you remember they say, hey, why are you staring like this? Jesus who left here, he's going to come again in the same way. And that same prophet, Zechariah, who said the Messiah would come as suffering servant on a little donkey, also says King Jesus, the warrior, will return to the Mount of Olives, the same place, exact same place that he took off from. So the early church starts getting it. He is coming back. There was a first coming, now there's going to be a second coming. In Acts chapter 3, when remember Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to the Jews, 3,000 people believe in Jesus as Savior. When he heals a blind man on the Temple Mount, and the crowd comes around, of course, Peter tells him, in fact, listen to the language. This is uh, Acts 3, verses 18 through 21. A Christ would suffer, he's fulfilled that, so repent and turn back to God through Christ, that your sins may be blotted out, Jesus has provided redemption, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That is the Palm Sunday they were looking forward to. They'd experienced one, but it wasn't the final one because Jesus would come back and would bring, Peter calls it, times of refreshing, that God may send Christ, who's been appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. So Peter got it that early. He's going to come again. When he comes, it'll be times of refreshing. They just didn't know when. No different than the Palm Sunday crowd. Looking for Messiah, not knowing when that would be. Uh, there's some verses on your uh, sheet I'll let you look at on your own. I do want to mention 1 Thessalonians 1. So the Palm Sunday crowd, they're ready to see the Messiah. They're waiting expectantly. There's expectation. There's hope. In 1 Thessalonians uh, 1, Paul writes to a church that's not very old in the faith and they're persecuted, but he tells them this in verses 9 and 10. He says that, I don't have to ask people about you because everybody knows something about you and it's this, it's you turned from idols to God. You were idolaters like the rest of the ancient world. You turned your back on your idols to God to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who saves us from the wrath to come. That's the paradigm for us. You turn from your life of rebellion against God, 
you now serve the living and true God and what they were doing is what we're meant to do and you're waiting for His Son from heaven. And you get in 1 Thess 4, later in that same epistle, Paul brings this up. and Paul brings this up. He says this, The Lord Himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven with a cry of command. You remember in John 11, Jesus stands outside Lazarus' tomb and He says, all He does is He says, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead come out of the grave. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. With a cry of command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, be a little bit like Sinai, this sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's resurrection. Jesus comes. He calls the dead, those who have already died, they're resurrected. They get resurrection bodies, and, and the picture is important. Jesus is in the air, the text says. And the saints in resurrection, they rise to what? They meet Him in the air. Now this is... So, just pause briefly. So, we don't push a particular version of eschatology much, though if I teach through passages, I tell you what my take is. So, some of us may believe that the rapture occurs on its own. There's a seven-year period, and then the second coming occurs. And personally, that's my take. So, so it would go like this. 1 Thessalonians 4, the saints rise to meet Jesus in the air. They attend with Him seven years in heaven, and then they return with Him. Revelation talks about this, 19. They return with Him to the earth, right back to the Mount of Olives, and to Jerusalem, where He takes up His royal rule and reign. With a rod of iron, He puts down all oppression. He's exactly what the Palm Sunday crowd thought He would be in the first coming, but wasn't. Or, that's fine, if that's your position like mine, that's fine. But if it's not, and you say, you know what, I think the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, and the second coming, Matthew 24, I think they're the same thing, then that's fine too. In either event, what you've got is a Palm Sunday image. So the king is coming to Jerusalem, and the people of the city, they rise to meet him, and then as part of his entourage, they come right back into his city to acclaim him as king and to begin his thousand-year reign on the earth. The imagery is the same. And we're meant to be looking, to be listening for that call. That's the thought. 1 Corinthians 15, there's a number of passages that talk about this. Uh, Titus 2 is a lovely one. We're waiting. See, there's that sense again. Like Palm Sunday crowd, we're supposed to be waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Time's just about out. Let me uh, wind down with this. Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible, last book of the Bible. Jesus says in verse 7, Behold, I'm coming soon. Now this was written 2,000 years ago. The Greek term here used can mean in a short period of time, or it can mean quickly, like the blink of an eye. That's the language of 1 Corinthians 15. When it happens, there's, it's done. It's going to happen and it'll be over. So Revelation 22, 7, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon. And then in Revelation 22.12, he says, Behold, I'm coming soon. You start seeing a pattern, don't you? And if there's any confusion, Revelation 22.20, Surely, I'm coming soon. Jesus says the same thing three times. To a church that's meant to be expectantly waiting for Him and His call. 
And Revelation 22.17 says this, in response to Jesus saying, I'm coming, the Spirit and the Bride, the church, that's you and me, that's the redeemed, Jesus is redeemed of this age at least, the Spirit and the Bride say what? Come. The, let the one who hears say, come. We could put Palm Sunday language in here. We could say, Hosanna. Jesus says, I'm coming. We say, God save. Please save now. Please save today. Love to see you today, Lord, if it's no trouble. My calendar's open. What are you up to? That's the thought. He says, I'm coming and I'm coming soon. And our response is meant to be, let it be now. We're ready. We're waiting for you. For me, the Palm Sunday and the promise or the expectation of Jesus coming brings up two issues as we close. The first is this. Have we embraced Jesus as our, as our suffering servant? Have we as an individual said to Jesus, Hosanna for my sins. God save me from my sins. And guys, sin is an onerous burden. And it makes the small, twisted, bent, hollow people. And to know that your sins are forgiven and that you're saved forever, there's no greater joy than that. The burden is lifted. God's Spirit fills us up. We overflow with the water of life. There's nothing more important for anyone than that. Have you said to Jesus, be my Savior? You bore my griefs. I'm healed because of your stripes. That's the first thing. It's the only thing that matters at the end of the day. For those of us who have, are we like the Palm Sunday crowds? And again, I just think this is a great barometer of our spiritual health or temperature. If we say to ourselves, the thought of seeing Jesus, of hearing His call, of seeing Him come into His glory for His sake, the fruit of His labors, if this never crosses our mind or crosses them only occasionally, I think we're missing it. I think our minds have been taken up with too many common things that all perish and are not near as important as thinking I could see Jesus at any moment. I could hear His voice. I could be part of that new, that second, if you will, Palm Sunday crowd that yells out, Hosanna, the King has come. If you would, rise with me. The worship team is going to come up. And let's, let's uh, read together, hopefully with some enthusiasm, from Psalm 118. So this is the song. That those Jews, those, that Palm Sunday crowd, this is what they were singing. These were the words on their mind as they cried out their hosannas to King Jesus. Let's read that together. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.